got full house and we got some people on the interwebs. Looks like we're live over there. We're going to be talking about John Owen. So I'm going to pray for us and get into it. He's a, he's a handsome fellow. Oh, wait. Oh, no. Oh, no. Emotional damage. Okay. There we go. There's John. I love Mickey. He's got some fancy hair. All right, let's pray for us. Father God, thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for those who have gone before us. We pray that we are built up and edified in the faith, Lord, that you are glorified as we learn about Mr. John Owen and all the things that he wrote about and the life that he lived. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so before we get into Mr. Owen, Properly, I thought we'd do just a quick Puritan refresh because he is a Puritan. Some people call him the greatest Puritan. And so we remember the Puritans came about in the 1500s in England. It was first a, a negative term. It was a pejorative term because they wanted to reform the Church of England. It was not holy enough for them. So it was essentially a movement of church reform, of pastoral renewal, of evangelism, of spiritual revival, the Puritans are tremendously helpful still today in their um, theology and whatnot. So, four words to describe the Puritans from J.I. Packer's book. This is highly, highly recommended. It's a read, though. It's kind of a slog. It's got some, it's got some, some, a lot of words, no pictures, and uh, pretty tight letting. So this is, this is, this is tough sledding. But it's good. It's called A Quest for Godliness, The Puritan Vision of the Christian Life the one and only J.I. Packer. And John Owen is all over this book. But as far as the Puritans themselves, four uh, words. First one was maturity. We actually talked about this when we talked about John Bunyan. Um, J.I. Packer calls them the California Redwoods of Christianity. They're just that mature. Their motto was, he who suffers wins. They were just like, bring it on. It will make me a deeper, stronger, more mature Christian. They had a very steady character. Hey, Ken. They had a very steady, significant work ethic. And so they approached Christianity in a very, very mature way. And they suffered a lot. Um, their worldview was another word uh, used to describe them. They were Christians with 100% of their lives. They did not think of a sacred secular divide. All of life was lived before God. All life, quorum Deo, before God. Another word was action. They were reformers. They weren't afraid of conflict. They fought against sin and injustice in society. So they were bold uh, men and women. They were men of action. And also, lastly, family. They were very family-focused. Every house was a little church. And one quote that we read last time, it's hardly too much to say that the Puritans created the Christian family in the English-speaking world, which is a pretty huge quote to say. Um, so they, the fathers, especially as the spiritual leaders of the home, took discipleship and evangelism very, very seriously. So family devotions, family worship, the Lord's Day was a huge part of their lives. They would prepare for the Lord's Day. They would set it aside. There would be lots of times of family worship. Of course, church being a big part of that, and then discussing the sermon and family worship. They did not participate in some of the things that would go on in the town, like dancing in the streets. 
or card playing, if they had cards, or any of those other worldly enticements. It was a day that was dedicated to the Lord, but that was uh, also centered on family as well. So Puritans, extremely helpful. I would encourage you to read the Puritans. I'm reading a book uh, by Thomas Brooks right now called Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices, which in true Puritan fashion has one device and then it has like nine or ten remedies then for all of those devices. Hey, Bridget. So good stuff. Very good stuff. This is a good primer, too, uh, to get an idea of some of the Puritan stuff. But let's talk about some biographical facts for Mr. Owen. It's probably pretty small. Let's say about that. And cut off again because of our thing. He was born in 1616 in England. Oddly enough, same year Shakespeare died. He died in 1683 of asthma and gallstones, for those following along at home. Oddly enough, he was buried with fellow Puritan John Bunyan. He came alongside John Bunyan, and he actually encouraged him and connected him with a publisher for a little-known book called The Pilgrim's Progress. So without uh, John Owen, I don't think Pilgrim's Progress would have seen the light of day. But he encouraged him to write it and also to publish it as well. Some more background. His father was a pastor. Uh, although we don't know too much of his own personal life, we know just kind of the, the, bare boat, the bare basics. None of his diaries have been preserved. Many of his letters are gone, but we do have his books. His father was a pastor. He was also a Puritan, so he comes by it honestly. He had three brothers and a sister. Um, he went to school and prepared for university, which he entered the university at the ripe age of 12, which actually isn't that out of ordinary to enter the university at the age of 12. What was or out of the ordinary was how hard he worked. He was a ferocious student. Even at 12 years old, he allowed himself four hours of sleep per night so that he would then dedicate most of the day to studying and learning. 12 years old, he said, I just need four hours of sleep at night. Then I want to get back to studying. Who does that? Like that's... <laughs> That turned out to be probably pretty bad for him health-wise later on because he kept up that pace. And that's not a good pace to keep up. He received his BA at 16 and his master's at 19. He began to work uh, on his divinity degree, but he actually quit because of the weak theology that was at Oxford at the time. He could not, he could not uh, rationalize all the rampant Arminianism that was going on. And so he's like, I'm not getting my degree here. So he left and he started preaching. He uh, preached a famous sermon against Arminianism and the parliament heard about it. And they made him the vicar of a church in Fordham, which actually is still an evangelical church today in Fordham, England. During those Fordham years, they were good years. He met and married his wife. They had 11 children. And 10 of them died in childhood. So it was a very good time, but it was also a traumatic time for him, right? Um, I think Piper estimated the book, like every three years, he was in this cycle of either having a child or burying a child. So he was always, always, always walking through the valley of the shadow of death, as he said. Um, ministry, however, was going very well in Fordham thousands, literally thousands of people would come to hear him preach at the 
Baptist Church in Fordham. And he had a lot of work to do because Fordham was a very kind of high church. The last guy who did it was a high church Anglican. And he came in and he was all about Calvinism and the gospel. And so he had a lot of work to do and he had his road, his work cut out for him. So that's what he did. Um, eventually, he became friends with Oliver Cromwell. And Oliver Cromwell hired him as a chaplain in Ireland and Scotland. And from there, his friend uh, Cromwell got him to be the vice chancellor of Oxford, his very school that he came, his very school that he quit because it wasn't theologically robust enough. Well, you could bet what he started to do once he got to Oxford. Oxford. He turned that place around. He transformed it. During those years, however, he was kind of a controversial guy because he was being very well paid. Ten times, they say, the average salary of the regular pastor he was getting for his post at Oxford. And uh, he used to walk around, as legend has it, in expensive Spanish leather boots, and he would be mocked for that. And he would put a lot of powder in his hair. I guess when you have the wigs, you have the powder in your hair. And evidently there's some sort of uh, rivalry of, the, of Oxford and, um, what's the other famous, Cambridge, of Oxford and Cambridge. And so the Cambridge guy would say that Dr. Owen wears enough powder in his hair to discharge eight cannons. <laughs> I guess that's trash talking in the 17th century, right? But he did. He kind of was kind of well-known. He was a doctor. He was a famous theology guy. And he, was, he, was, he had a lot of money. And so people were kind of taking shots at him. Eventually, I think it kind of got to him in that. Eventually, I think he was convicted of that. He gave up his post. And he kind of went out of the public eye and into local pastoring and writing. He was somewhat sidelined because in this time in England, the Presbyterians were the big dogs. And he was not a Presbyterian. He was a Congregationalist. Congregationalist, we might kind of say, is kind of like a Baptist, right? The idea that they're independent, they're autonomous churches, the congregation makes all the decisions as opposed to a Presbytery or something like that. Uh, but he used the lack of the spotlight. Now it's kind of off of him. He just kept writing. And he kept writing and he kept preaching. Unfortunately, life became harder. His first wife died. He remarried. He was remarried for six years before his only child. Remember, 10 of them died as children. There was one child that made it to adulthood. And then she passed away as well. So he buried every child he had. He buried 11 kids. Right after that, a year later, he fell terminally ill. He retired to the countryside to kind of basically uh, pass away in peace. And the doctor said that it took a long time for him to die because of the strength of his brain. He was, I don't know how they figured that out in the 17th century, but the man had a massive intellectual capacity. He was a ferocious reader. He wrote like crazy. Um, his intellect was just massive. He had, you know, from the time he was 12 years old, right? He only allowed himself four hours of sleep. So he, uh, they really think he was just so smart. His just brain took a long time to shut down or something. <laughs> I don't know how they figured that out. But Mr. Packer once again called him, or Dr. Packer, I should say, sorry, um, called him the greatest among Puritan theologians. So when you talk about Puritan guys, Pretty much John Owen is going to be at the top of the list there. All right, so there he is in background. Now let's talk about 
some of his key themes. And once again, this time we get to talk about conversion. We didn't really get to talk about conversion last week, but we get to talk about conversion this week. Owen, as I mentioned, was a, a settled Calvinist. He had a massive body of doctrinal knowledge, he, robust intellect, but he lacked the personal assurance and really the, the understanding of a relationship with God. On one Sunday in 1642, that all changed. He went to London to hear a famous Presbyterian pastor at this St. Mary's Church. Unfortunately, when he got there, the guy that he was going to see was not the one who was speaking. And so the guy that filled in was a simple country preacher. And that simple country preacher had as his text one verse, which was Matthew 8, 26. Back then, you preached on one verse. Could you imagine that? We'd be in Matthew for the rest of our, <laughs> our lives. <clears throat> We'd still be in chapter one, for sure. Fit right in the Bible study. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, sometimes we do three or four verses. Um, in Matthew 8, in that section, is where Jesus is calming the storm. So this is the context of it, right? There arose a great storm at sea. Jesus was sleeping. They woke him up. They said, you know, save us, Lord. We're perishing. And verse 26 of chapter 8 of Matthew says, he said to them, why are you so afraid, you of little faith? That was it. <laughs> kind of similar to Spurgeon that we'll see how he was saved. It was one verse. He didn't really take it in context of what was going on. But that's the verse that pierced his heart and said, why are you so afraid, ye of little faith. So before then, he was approaching this, you can kind of surmise this, right, all intellectually and, and from a student. And so he didn't have that faith. So he was convicted and comforted by this lack of faith and, and called one of little faith. And so he said his, his doubts and his fears uh, melted away, and he knew at once he was transformed by the Holy Spirit. He felt liberated. So kind of a dramatic conversion story. But once again, we have a conversion story as a key part of their lives. What do you think? Any uh, observations or applications just from that little bit of his conversion story there? Or his life so far? Anything that jumped out at you that we can pull out and use to help us live for Christ in 2022 America? Our... our... <laughs> Most Puritans at the time have been Congregationalists? Uh, I think most Puritans at the time would have been Presbyterian. Presbyterian. Yeah. I, I don't think, think that's helping us, but I was curious. Yeah, there you go. It must have been really hard to go on with losing all your children. Yeah. And your wife. Absolutely. Yeah. And, we're... and it seemed like he had the strength to do that. Yeah. We're definitely going to talk about how he did that and some of the things that he did. Mr. Vreeland, did you have a comment, question? or Because of the epidemic of lice in the 16th, 15th, and 17th century, yes. men and women would often shave their heads and apply powder to ensure that the wig would stay wow. fixed. Interesting. I did not know that they shaved their heads. Yeah, it was a different ballgame back then. The sickness and the living conditions and all of that. Holy. That's yeah. not much different today in other parts of the world. No, so. no, You're absolutely right. So yeah. the uh, schools that we support in uh, Africa, yep, they keep the kids' hairs very, very short. Okay, it's not quite shaved, but you know, like really, really short. Even the girls.
Okay. All have short hair. Okay. Lice. Yep. Bugs or whatever yeah. else. All sorts of parasites. Yeah. Yeah. Targets are yeah. But, yeah. Um, but I, you know, to me, it, um, it seems interesting that um, he had an intellectual knowledge. Yeah. And I wonder how that affected his ability to, um, to be a loving uh, pastor. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, because he was a pastor, yet, and I'm sure he was teaching yeah. accurately. Yeah. However, you know, was, you know, was he showing the love of Christ? I think you're right. Maybe it tipped more towards the teaching intellectual sermons as opposed to gentle-hearted shepherding. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Yeah, me both. What about that, just this obscure verse? Matthew 8, 26. Like, it just pierced his heart and... He was just saved just like that. What does that tell us about the Word of God? Any encouragements there? Doesn't take much to pierce the heart and soul. No, right? All of God's when Word. It's, when it's Word, it's God's Word. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. The Holy Spirit is uh, unstoppable. Yep. Penetrates deeper than a double-edged sword. Yeah, I'm continually amazed at you know some of the comments that people will say to me after a sermon where it was like, you know, it's like, Oh, you said this one thing that just, or that verse that you read or whatever, and it really pierced my heart. And I remember thinking like, I didn't even, that was like something I just threw in or like, I didn't, I didn't even think that would be a zinger. Like, you know, it was like, I didn't even think it was that good, but it was like the Holy spirit just, that's what the Holy spirit used, you know? And it just shows it's not the messenger. It's, God's word. It's the Holy Spirit in that. All scripture is God's word. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right? Just the power of the word. Right? Can you imagine if a famous pastor had preached? Yeah. Like he was supposed to, and he never heard you yeah. know, Matthew yeah. 8. He probably would have been all puffed up, like, oh, that was such a great intellectual sermon. And I loved his ninth point. And, you know, but instead, <laughs> this, this country preacher got up there, and the word of God just. Some of the most important three words. In the beginning, and it is finished. Yeah. Just three words. Yeah, definitely. We see once again, of course, as we discussed uh, two or three weeks ago, the difference between intellectual knowledge and saving faith. Right? They're not the same thing. Right? We need saving faith. We also need intellectual knowledge of the facts of the gospel, but that's not going to save us. Right? Even the demons believe in God and they shudder. But, right? Do we? Do we understand that? It also brought to mind something I heard um, on a podcast um, lately. Do we believe in God or do we believe God? It was very helpful when I heard somebody say that. And it was talking about uh, dealing with fear, worry, and anxiety. right? And it's like, well, I believe in God. It's like, okay, do you believe in God or do you believe God? And his promises and who he is and you know what, what he's done for you on the cross and what that means for you as your identity and all of that. So I think that John Owen on that day came to believe God. He might have believed in God intellectually, right? But that's the day it came, uh, became real to him. You know what's so. interesting? You, you know, he was in the right place. It was all in the head. Yeah. And not a little bit in the heart when you were in the seminary. Yeah. And, but yet he was led out of that. Yeah. So, yeah. So God had a plan for him, right? Yep. Uh, your head and your heart's not connected well enough. Yeah. And in a way, 
right? That's kind of what we hope to do with our kids, right? Right. We hope to, I think it was Chandler, that that priest one time that said, uh, we just want to lay enough kindling all around them, right? And then pray that the Holy Spirit ignites it. True. The trip. Something like that. Age of opportunity. Ah, you are correct. Yeah, and that's exactly, and, and the kindling there is like the truth of God's word, Christian education, whatever we can do, right? But still, that's not going to make our kids Christians, right? It has to be the Holy Spirit that ignites that truth to then make it theirs. So, definitely. Okay, let's look at some other stuff. Let's look at his. His writing themes. He wrote a lot. He his first book. He jumped right into the middle of controversy, and he stayed there pretty much his whole life. So he was uh, no stranger to controversy. He wrote and he studied constantly. And don't forget, this is all in the background. If you remember from Bunyan, right there was the Civil War. There was the Great Purification. There was the the government coming at the uh, Puritans. There was a civil war, which was basically about the Book of Common Prayer, which was tearing the Church of England apart. Some people wanted it. Some people didn't. The the Puritans were like, no, it's evil because it causes you to do all these terrible things and idolatry. And then, of course, the Anglican Church, that was what they did. So amidst all this, somehow, remember, there were preachers getting pulled out of their pulpits and, you know, some were being uh, thrown in jail and whatnot. Uh, Bunyan, of course, was thrown in jail for a really long time, right? And all he had to do was say he wouldn't, you know, he would recant, but he never would do that. Uh, he avoided prison somehow all of those years. And so he continued to write. And he had a couple big uh, kind of uh, key themes in his writing. The first one is holiness or sanctification. And one of his greatest works was the mortification of sin that he wrote. What does mortification mean? Death, yeah, means killing sin. One quote, he said, Holiness is nothing but the implanting, the writing, and the realizing of the gospel on our souls. And that should be progressive throughout the Christian life. We should continue to be implanting, and it still should be written on our souls as we go through life. There's a quote, maybe a quote, Four thirty-seven from the mortification of sin. Really good podcast that I listen to called "The Mortification of Spin." So that's what's going through my head. Right <laughs> um, he said, "I hope I may, I hope I may own in sincerity that my heart's desire unto God and the chief design of my life." are that mortification and universal holiness may be promoted in my own and in the hearts and ways of others to the glory of God, so that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ may be adorned in all things. You see the way he ties that to the the glory of God, the adorning of the gospel, is directly tied to his own personal holiness and then how that's an effect on everyone else around him. And mortification, as we said, means warfare on our own sin with a view to killing it, right? We don't want to manage sin. We want to kill sin. His famous saying was uh, that he wrote in Mortification of Sin is, be killing sin or it will be killing you. He had that view of sin, like this is nothing to mess around with. I have to kill this. He called sin a troublesome inmate, of which we have a lifelong fight with. (laughs) 
an idea of like having a cellmate, right? That you just don't get along with and neither of you are getting out of there. And it's just a lifelong fight, a lifelong conflict. He also had uh, two sides to holiness. There was the mortification of sin, which was the killing of sin, but there was also the vivification, if I could say it that way, the, the bringing to life of God's, what God calls us to, right? So it wasn't just killing sin. Like the Apostle Paul says, it's not just killing sin. It's in Ephesians 4, when he says, when is a thief no longer a thief? Right? And you would think like, oh, when he stops stealing. And Paul says, no, not when he stops stealing, but when he gets a job and he starts paying for the things with his own money. Right? And his point is, it's not just killing the sin. It's bringing to life how God calls us to live. That's what God calls us to. Right? And so that squashes legalism right away, right? Because legalism is just about all the things you're not supposed to do. But Christianity tells us a lot more of how we're supposed to live. So Owen got it right. And he got that, that two sides of that same coin. It's not just putting sin to death, but it's also bringing to life what God calls us to and walking in that. Right? So uh, holiness was a huge part of his writing. Um, <laughs> Ray Westby texting me. All right. So. Second thing was scripture was an enormous part of his writing. Scripture was the primary way that God reveals truth. And there was a couple things that he thought about scripture, which are foundational to it. First was that if you were not converted, you didn't understand scripture, right? There had to be a work of the Holy Spirit to open your eyes it was said that no Puritan had a sharper sense of the tragic darkness and perversity of the human mind than John Owen. The absolute necessity then was the Holy Spirit to open eyes to understand the Word of God. And of course, the Holy Spirit's role in authoring Scripture and inspiring Scripture and all of that. Right? So that was one part of it. Scripture is huge in the way that God reveals Himself to us, but you need to be born again. You need to be converted. You need to be regenerated in order for you to understand Scripture and for it to have its work in you. Yeah. The second thing that he was very adamant about was that there was no private word from God apart from his inspired word. So, no, the Lord told me. He said, <laughs> he wrote very sharply, if private revelations agree with Scripture, then they're needless. If they disagree, then they're false. <laughs> not much more room there, <laughs> right? And maybe we can even talk about that for a second because I think we here at Highlands would, would agree with that. We would say that, you know, you're not going to have any new revelation from the Lord, right? There's not going to be another book of the Bible that's going to be written. It's not going to be, you know, your first speculations chapter one is, is not going to happen here. And so any word from the Lord that we would get, right, is going to have to agree with Scripture, right? How then does the Holy Spirit then, if he's not going to give us new revelation, then how does the Holy Spirit then speak to us? Or does the Holy Spirit speak to us? Or any thoughts on that? I think you can have promptings from the Holy Spirit or impressions. Okay. It's not, you know, direct, you know, speaking. Not a direct download? Yeah. So promptings or impressions. Okay. Yeah. Mr. Freeland? Conviction. Conviction. That's a big one. That's a big impression on our soul, right? 
and that idea that it's not new, or it's not something that you know, we know what sin is, but it's the conviction that's applied to your own self. Yeah. Personal application, you just started to go there. Yep. You just said, as it's applied, how does the scripture apply to me? How do I apply that in, that, in my right. life? Not what does it mean to me. Right, but how right. do I apply it? But right. what is it's what am I going to hermeneutical tightrope right, right there right not right. what it means to me what we're really saying and that is not there's one meaning there's one meaning but many applications but yeah, how's there may be a personal application for me yeah. that I need to to do and the Holy Spirit may prompt me yeah. to make a change and so sometimes when people say this is what it means to me we're kind of like right. eh, just I know what you mean but right the, right this is how this applies right to me. how, how does it apply to me this. would be a better way of, right how can we concretely live this scripture. Yeah, so I think we'd all agree that the Holy Spirit still does actively work through his word and through his church and through his people and all the other means that God gives to us. He's not going to give us new revelation, right? But he's going to do all the work of impressions and leadings and things like that and and convicting and applying it to our lives and and all of that that we have to be sensitive to in in the Holy Spirit. So, yeah, but there definitely is... A, a line where you would hear some people say, you know, I received a word from the Lord and, you know, um, Justin, you should move to Omaha and good luck with that. <laughs> no, we would not, we'd not go that far in that. Although who knows, the Lord might give us impressions. We might get them wrong, right? Yep. Why might we get them wrong? It's a really easy answer. One would be sin. Yeah. <laughs> that would be the number one. Because we have a fallen three-pound brain, right? right? That we might be wanting something or feeling something, and then we're going to baptize it and sanctify it and say, I think this is God's will. It's like, maybe. I don't know why you're will. <laughs> right. Great. He's one of the oldest problems I've had with the idea of understanding what God's will is, is people have a tendency to not be able to discern between our own passions and desires Versus our con- conjurations that we imagine. Yeah. Sometimes there's a tendency that the mystical has a feeling factor to it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it even scratches an empowerment itch in people. Mm-hmm. But it's, I think that part of the beauty of the gospel is that it has been solid from its beginning. It was solid as it was finished in the completion of Christ. Yeah. And it was designed to be solid through the completion of Whole yeah, and I think that's what makes it a great faith. I think if it if it was subject to the sway of our own imaginary moments of desire or passions that we have as people, it yeah. would be a weak gospel. Well, it it triggers the emotions and the feelings, right? Yeah. So as Americans, we just think we need to go with that, right? We're like, mm, there's something that needs to override that, which is the Word of God, which is the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah. Don't follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. Terrible advice. <laughs> Terrible advice. Right? Heart is I know this guy that I'm dating is not a Christian, but I really yeah. think God wants me to marry him. Yeah. No, he doesn't. He <laughs> really doesn't. And I can say that with authority because it says it in his word. Right? Just because it might have worked out for somebody else by accident or by the providence of God, I should say, right? doesn't mean that you know, we'll do something foolish in that, right? So yeah, so there's no, he was very, very clear on there's no private word from God. He said, once the scriptures were written and the prophetic and apostolic witness to Christ was complete, there's no need then for private revelations of new truth. And he was, he was 
definitive that there was no more that was given. Um, he also said, I talked about the authority of Scripture, that Scripture was authoritative. Why? Because God wrote it. And so if God wrote it, God's the authority, God's the king, God's the sovereign ruler. So if God wrote Scripture, then it is by definition authority. Yeah, there is no higher authority in that. And uh, one quote that I didn't put on there, but I just slid on Facebook a moment ago, said, if Scripture has more than one meaning, then it has no meaning at all. <laughs> Contrary to some other sermons we have heard lately in our men's leadership group, right? Whatever this sermon passage is, whatever it means to you. There are many meanings here. There might not be any meaning at all. <laughs> no, there's a meaning. There really, really is. This is 1600s, and he got that. Another common theme was preparing to meet Christ. Um, so he would he would meditate on the glory of Christ. And, and so he, he, again, had that balance of being so deeply intellectual, but also he had his feelings and his affections engaged and he loved Christ. He would meditate on the glory of Christ. As he was dying, one of his quotes was, the long wished for day is come at last. He just had that expectation, that anticipation, like it's going to happen. I'm going to see Jesus. Right? Think about that. You think like, you're such a nerd. Like, <laughs> you're so intellectual and so smart. But he had this passion for Christ and he longed to meet Christ. And so even going through some of the massive things that he did, I think it even cultivated even a greater sense of longing to meet Christ. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of my pastors would say, cheer up, someday we're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I'm going to have to steal that. <laughs> Both Pastor Steve Wallace. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So anything... Any observations or anything resonating? We talked about some of the stuff with Scripture, but anything from holiness or um, any other further thoughts on Scripture? Any thoughts on the I have to thing? echo the last thing that Kim just said and what you guys were talking about because I honestly think one of the greatest testimonies any Christian has ever had is a good answer. Yeah. And I think Finishing that, well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And to be able to finish well and to, and to show everybody else who's going to have to go through it, you know, what kind of peace your soul can have in the end? Not only peace, but yeah. anticipation. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like Jonathan Edwards, we, we, we do well to think about that moment. We would. How to finish well. Yeah. It's not a morbid thought. It's it's a mature thought. Because yeah. like Ken said, you know, 10 out of 10 people die. So yes. you can die well or you can die... No, no you're going to get frozen. <laughs> just to say said to me more than one person said that a Christian that um, uh, how a Christian dies is one of the biggest long lasting uh, impressions that he can leave to a worldly person mm. uh, die die like a Christian yeah uh, a Christian dies without fear yeah that's a witness. Yeah. Amen. Because it people really die angry deaths. Yep. Or completely fearful deaths. Yeah. Or, or right. fearful, right. Or fearful right. of being sick or fearful of whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But uh, I die like a believer. Yeah. Die like a believer with your boots on. <laughs> what about holiness? 
Do we typically regard holiness such to the extent of perhaps Mr. Owen? He would say your whole spiritual vitality is wrapped up in holiness. It's a lack of holiness is deadly. It's toxic to your spirituality. Does an evangelical church in America tend to focus much on holiness as a as a whole? W H O L E. Probably yeah. not, right? Probably not. Yeah. Um, Bible study this morning. We. Uh, Justin took us well through uh, Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Right? The author of Hebrews just says it point blank. You're, you don't cultivate holiness. You're not going to make it into the kingdom. And then everybody's like, oh, but I'm Christian. I'm saved. I prayed the prayer when I was five years old. And it's like, okay, but we're supposed to be progressively growing in holiness and progressively killing sin and bringing to life the things of Christ. Right? And so do we care much about holiness? And also, I think it was one of these guys pointed out that how hard was it for him to work on holiness? Right? We work out holiness in the comforts of all of the things that we have. Like, oh, uh, indoor plumbing, right? And uh, antibiotics and diarrhea medication and things that kill a lot of people in the 17th century, right? This guy, like, buried 11 kids and had terrible diseases and everything else and lice or whatever else he had. But yet, he was consumed with holiness. And we have all these comforts and all these uh, modern conveniences. And yet, are we distracted by them or are we still continuing to grow in holiness? So there was another thing that uh, I noticed in application. There's uh, his juxtaposition between holiness and knowledge. And it's like sometimes we separate those two things into thinking, well, holiness is kind of a, maybe a feeling where it's like this weird like you're a more mature believer or you're a holy person and then you have like knowledge is over here like it's more of an intellectual kind of thing there's a direct relationship that that owen noticed between holiness and knowledge and he basically said the more we pursue holiness the more we pursue knowledge those two things are directly related so if you want to become more holy you need to learn more about god right and sometimes we think like yeah, I want to be holy. And then, you know, just, just like concentrate on being holy. Think holy thoughts or something. Right? He's like, no, 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 no. You want to be holy, get your nose in the book and learn as much as you possibly can. Right? That should stir your affections for Christ. Um, one of the things that, uh, that I've thought and I've been convicted of as a pastor, right? I don't want to be a subject matter expert. And uh, when I was in the medical communications business we used to call them SMEs. <laughs> subject matter experts right <laughs> i'm a SME. and i was i think i wrote in one of my bibles like don't be a SME. i don't want to be a SME. i want to be transformed by the word of god i just don't want to be the guy that dispenses expert knowledge right that's not that's not what we're called to do as christians especially as pastors and, and leaders but as individuals you know, sometimes as evangelicals, we can kind of, we love our Bible studies, right? We Bible study ourselves to death, but are we just intellectually kind of filling in the blanks? Or are we actually being transformed by the Word of God? So don't be SMEs. 
Okay. Let's be transformed. Isn't that sort of the role of, of trials? We talked about that, <laughs> we talked about that in, in Hebrews this morning. I mean, it was the, the passage we did was sort of summarizing like um, how God disciplines us yeah. and how that discipline is necessary to yeah. bring us towards his holiness. So it, it's whatever the state of the relationship is between the mind and, and, uh, and the heart, it uh, God is, is 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 stepping into us yeah. in that, and I mean I will say life was was simply more difficult back then for you know lack of yeah. sanitation all that sort of stuff. It just getting through the day was a bit of a trial. So yeah. uh, I think we're a little more separated from that in our in our comfort. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's like trials God uses right to kind of shake us and say, hey, all this stuff you're learning or not learning or need to learn it. Apply it, like live it out, like walk it out in this situation. And like where the rubber beats the road. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So we're saved. What does that mean right now for you uh, on a Monday morning? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, Val and I were just talking about that the other day. We were talking about how like that exact verse and the whole idea of you know about what a very bold and necessary prayer is to be able to say. <coughs> Dear God, whatever the sin is in my life, please use my trials to reveal it to me so that you can oh, such help a dangerous to bring me prayer. to transformation. It gets a hard prayer to be able yeah. to pray that prayer. But to Justin's point, you know, if you really feel about your sin the way that God feels about our sin, yeah. it's a necessary prayer. Yeah. Um, reminds me of a, a song lyric. I know I don't normally use song lyrics <laughs> for theology, but from Praise You in the Storm. Okay. Uh, how can circum I, how can circumstances change who I forever am in you? Yeah, you know? they can't, right? So yeah, definitely. Good point. Yeah. So the role of uh, knowledge versus holiness. Yeah, Wendy. We're, we're talking about knowledge and intellect and such. What about the people that we wrote, we all read? Okay. Mm -hmm. What about the people that have faith and 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 believe their heart, but they don't have the intellect, knowledge, or they're not literate or something. Yeah, so yeah. Are you going to respond? An apologetics question. <laughs> <laughs> Paul addresses this in Romans, the difference between general revelation and specific revelation. And the scripture alludes to people who are in Christ being judged by the light in which they've been shown. So we can take comfort that for those who are called, that God is saving them, no matter their capacity. And that he is the just judge who mm -hmm. judges them according to the light given them, whether that is an internal light of understanding, a portion of ability, or the capacity of what their culture was able to expose of the light. Mm. But that is part of what makes him a good judge, and what makes the message of that gospel not just limited to the few that tell all. Because God has is, God is given... <clears throat> All three of those options and possibilities for the light to be exposed. That's comforting. Jesus addresses it on the cross when he says to the thief next to him, "Today you'll be with me in paradise." Mm -hmm. He didn't, you know. He he died and then he got up there and there was no oh, but do you understand like sanctification? Right. Right. Like you know. Yeah, he just understood it. I'm the Son of God. Yeah. Truly, truly, you are the Son of God. Yeah. There's a sliding scale to that too, 
right? All the way from someone who uh, uh, dies as an infant, right? And has no possible even chance to understand, right? Or someone who then is so severely mentally handicapped that they can't process anything, right? That's where, you know, Reformed theology, Calvinism is a warm blanket, right? Because God will lose none of his who are his, right? Um, but also then the sliding scale is you have people who... who can't understand or can't read or, you know, can't, you know, uh, different cases up here, right? And, and I would even add to what Ron said, right? The, the special revelation is it's one of the huge roles of the church, you know, to preach and to proclaim the good news. How will they know unless someone goes and tells them, right? Uh, time and time again, throughout the Old Testament, the priests and the scribes were explaining the word to the people, right? The, uh, the, uh, the people didn't read. Yeah, Ethiopian eunuch in the chariot, right? And, and, and Philip rolls by and he say, he's reading. He says, Do you understand what you're reading? He's like, no. <laughs> of course I don't understand what I'm reading. And he says, well, let me tell you. So there's the role of individual discipleship, preaching of the word of God. And let's not also forget the Holy Spirit, which transcends all of that in a supernatural way. And then he believed. He was immediately baptized. Yeah. What prevents me from being baptized? Look, there's a puddle. But also, but also, Wendy, I might point out too that everybody has different gifts. So you, you know, yeah. use the gifts that God gave you, whatever that gift is. Not everybody is meant to wear thick glasses and you know study, you know, write yeah. an entire book on yeah. on, a, on a single verse of the Bible. Yeah. But, you know, some people are, and they should do that. If that's. I will say. Hopefully, somebody will back me up on this. That I think. The trend is that Americans are intellectually lazy. Yes. Yes. Right? We're afforded so much luxury and so much, so many resources. And, and I'm, a, I'm a pastor, right? And, you know, oh, I'm fighting for, here, read this. Oh, I'm not going to read that. <laughs> I'm going to read. Oh. Sometimes you just got to get after it. You know? To Wendy's point, too, I have lived long enough as an old woman now, officially there as of this week of six. I have lived long enough as an old woman to be able to say that some of my greatest Imago Day moments have been with people whose portions were not mine, maybe cerebral. But their portion of their happiness, of their spirit, of those individuals, their Imago Day comes out in a portion I'm not even capable of understanding. Yeah. You know? So there's God in His. Divine ability with that Imago Dei does give portions, and that light can be seen even for those people that their yep. portion is different. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Well, if you're old, what does that make me? Holy <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You're what we call the all the valuable. All right. One more thing. <laughs> one more thing to talk about. Um, one, of his, um, one of his works was on communion with God. And that's a very famous work as well, Communion with God. Another huge topic for his writing. Um, and this empowered him through some of his most severe trials, right? Again, think about that. His wife that he was married to for 31 years, he buried her. He buried his last remaining adult child after burying 10, you know, when they were, when they were children, right? And as Piper put it, uh, he walked in the valley of the shadow of death most of his life. Right. And he also suffered greatly, like many other people did at that time, from sickness and everything else himself, right? 
But one of the things he cherished was communion with God. Uh, and communion specifically in the three-in-one God. And so his, his idea of God was heavily based in the Trinity and each one of those roles of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But if we said communion, what, what is communion? If you say communion with God, how would you explain that to a non-believer friend? Personal association. Personal association, okay. Like a unity, kind of like thinking the same way. Yeah, yeah. Coming to really, really be, you know, when you're in communion with someone else, you're really getting to know them well. Yeah. It's you're like, really getting to be, yep. understand their heart, it's a community. who they are. Yep. Yeah, it's, right. Yep. You're becoming one. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, um, he has an illustration of friendship, but it's not, not it's, it's much deeper than a friendship. Yeah. Right. It is a union, is a, a co, a community together, right? It is a relationship, a very deep relationship. His quote, so powerful. He said, friendship is most maintained and kept up by visits. And these, the more free and less occasioned by urgent business. And so to translate that kind of 17th century-ness, it means a, the best friendships are not one where you're always wanting something from somebody. Right, where you're just having this free time to be with somebody and enjoy the relationship, right? And how convicting that is. Don't you need uh, like-mindedness to have good communion? Oh yeah. Uh, good communion with the first name is God. Sure. But how many times do we rush into God's presence and be like, "Oh God, good, glad you're here. Listen, fix these first five things for me, really quick," instead of just like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, hold on. Like, where's, where's the relationship part?" right that's why when we pray prayer meeting sunday night 6 p.m shameless plug <laughs> when we pray we pray in the acts model we don't just rush in and say here are all these 15 things that god can do for us right we pray we start with adoration to warm our hearts up of who god is we talk about confession right we're we're, we're sinners and what that means <clears throat> and then we we express thankfulness of course for his grace and now we're ready to get into uh supplication and that idea so this is huge that, you know, a relationship and is maintained and kept up by visits, right? You got to see the people, you got to be committed and like-minded and have a relationship, right? But also, you know, it's not always something urgent that you're demanding of each other. It's just spending time with each other. And that's, that's what empowered him through these trials. The communion with the three-in-one God in that regard empowered him through these trials, right? You think of the temptation. I'm sure he did have those moments where he was pouring out like, geez, Lord, kid number six died. Like, can I just have one child that lives, right? But he was more focused on the relationship with. You can have communion with God by just being silent. Uh, yes. Uh, yes, like be still. Know that I'm God. Yeah. By being still. Yep. And, uh, so one of his uh, chief verses for this book was 1 John 1, 3 which says that we have seen and we have heard and we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The idea of the fellowship of each other, but also that fellowship of each other is based, to Frank's point, right, the common bond, the commonality, in this case of Christians, that we have fellowship with one another because I have fellowship 
with a three-in-one God. We have we share that together. So huge part of it. Um, just some observations. Uh, the practical application of the Trinity. Like we again, as evangelicals, sometimes we kind of end up focusing more on maybe Jesus Himself, right? But Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Jesus is the one who accomplished the work on the cross and the effective work for our salvation. I get it, but let's not lose sight of the Trinity. Owen didn't lose sight of the Trinity. He always had the roles of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he saw all those working together. Um, so if, it's, if we have communion then, how important is God communicating to us? And in what ways does God communicate to us? Communicates to us with his word. Yes, absolutely. And Owen, of course, would say that's first and foremost is how we can be sure, right? We have it. We have his written word. So it's the first and foremost way that he communicates to us, right? And of course, through his spirit, through general revelation, through uh, the church, through others, all of that. So part of communion with God is God communicating with us, right? We have a God that does not doesn't live on a mountain and we have to go and make a holy pilgrimage and sacrifice a squirrel or something and sit in a lotus position and hope he speaks to us, right? As weird as that would be. God communicates to us by his word through you because we pray and you pray for yourself. Mm. I'm saying, give me the words that I may speak. Yeah. Uh, uh, that, that you want me to speak yeah. uh, to this congregation today. Yeah. Amen. Right. Give him the words. Yep. So God communicates to us. This is part of the communion um, theory that he flushed out in this book. God communicates himself to us, right? He doesn't hide himself from us. He actively communicates with us. And then we respond to that communication. So how do we respond to God's communication with us? What does that look like in our lives? What's our response to God reaching out to us and communicating with us? Actions. Yep. Okay. Action. Obedience. What? Obedience. Obedience. Praise. Yep. yep. Praise. Worship. Sometimes repentance. Sometimes repentance. Right. Absolutely. All of those things. Right. Uh, Owen, of course, to his uh, idea of longing to see Jesus, he focused on the glory of Jesus. So he just he welled up an adoration and love for Jesus Christ. So all of those things. We could probably go on for five or ten more minutes in all the ways that we respond to God communicating to us. And we respond in those appropriate ways, right? Sometimes it is falling on our face and being like in repentance. Sometimes it is worship and thankfulness. Sometimes it is just obedience and walking it out, right? Sometimes it's action in other ways. And how is that communion possible? How do we have communion with this God? Yeah, Jesus. Yep. To Jesus. Yep. Uh, you can go right. Uh, our prayers go through Jesus, right to the throne. Yep. The throne of God Himself, right? Yep. Obedience. Yeah, absolutely. So those kind of three things, when He talks about communion with God, He flushes those out. Flushes those out, and says God communicates to us. We respond to God, and we we realize in in praise and glory because. This commun communion with God is only possible because of our union with God through Jesus Christ. So we rest in that. We, of course, give him glory and praise for that. Uh, we do that through prayer as well.
So Christ uh, used these trials to drive Owen deeper to himself. And I guess the question for us as we land the plane is, does that always happen with us? Sometimes in trials, right? Owen was a deeper and more, uh, a believer more in love with Jesus Christ because of these trials, which is like crazy to think about. Who knows? <laughs> it's our natural reaction is to run away. Yeah, right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but he realized, got it into his head and his heart, the true goodness of God and what that meant for him. So he stubbornly pressed in closer to Jesus, even through these trials. Good, good encouragement for us. Any thoughts, comments? Encouraging remarks. Do I have any more slides? No, I don't have any more slides. Uh, just an observation, because um, we're talking about fellowship with God, yep. fellowship with the, with the triune God. Um, I don't really think about fellowship with the Holy Spirit. I mean, yeah. I really kind of consider him as the utility player. I need a hand with the prayer. Can you pray on my behalf? Um, interesting. I've never really considered that. Yeah. And you look at biblical theology, you say, to your point, all the different ways the Holy Spirit, all the different ways, I almost said roles, there's one role, all the different ways that the Holy Spirit worked in the redemptive plan of God. Even from Genesis, right? The Spirit was hovering over the waters, right? The Spirit empowered Saul, or the Spirit empowered Moses, or the Spirit did that, or David, right? And then, of course, when Christ came, Spirit literally put Christ in, in Mary's womb, right? And the, the Spirit then empowered Christ to do his ministry. Raised him from the dead. When he raised yeah. him from the dead. And then John 14, John 15, John 16 says, I, Jesus says, I have to go so that the Spirit, the Comforter, the Paraclete will come. Right and now, in a totally different role, in well, totally different means, <laughs> I guess you'd say, right? And the idea of like, <clears throat> convicting us, teaching us all things that I've said, reminding you everything that I've said, and now how He empowers us, Helping convicts us, us strengthens us, opens eyes to the gospel. Yeah, yeah. So utility utility players are pretty good, uh, pretty good way. As as evangelicals, sometimes we can kind of think of them as like the Kind of a weird uncle, but you know, you know, the Bible says otherwise. Well, Jesus yeah. presently, his, his presence left, and he sent the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So basically, in everyday life, we need to call the Holy. Not that we have to call him, but we ask him to come down. Yes. And sit next to us, so to speak, and help us through a one-on-one -on -one personal. The Holy Spirit wants to be very personal. Yeah. Well, the Holy Spirit lives inside. Yeah, us. that's that's yeah. one of the huge so, things that I yeah. omitted, right? It, it, it with us. It Spirit lives in us. But he also encourages us. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, but he's with us all the time, yeah. so don't yeah. forget that, too. Yeah. He is always with us. Even if mind. we don't realize it or feel it or, or whatever, but you know, to ask him to yeah. to uh, help us yeah. is, is very, very you The know, same spirit, as <coughs> Mel said, that rose Christ from the dead right. lives in us. Whoa. Yep. Some days you need an extra special dose of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. 
you know, and, and Holy Spirit activate. How do you know? Because <laughs> I also yeah. spend time <laughs> yeah. you stuff him back down sometimes too because he's convicting us. Yeah. So, so he's not so he's not a he's not a, a, a reserve player. Yeah. No, yeah. He's, yeah, I mean, <coughs> but it's just yeah. in that context. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's that balance too. That's another thing Owens is always pushing for is the balance, right? Sometimes we'll see like a if if you say it's a spirit led church or something that that means a different thing right that usually means a focus on charismatic gifts that's usually out of balance right then right, right. generally right any other thoughts comments encouraging remarks instagram references no all right now let me pray for us <laughs> father thank you for this time that we could come and we could listen and we could learn Thank you for those that have joined us online. We thank you for men that have gone before us like John Owen. And of course, just the common grace of, even though it's not scripture, Lord, we have his works that we can still read today. Uh, that We could go on the internet and read for free uh, that are still there, Lord. And pray that you will help us to understand, to grow in these um, maturities, these deepen our knowledge and therefore our holiness and our effectiveness as a disciple. Help us in these things. Give us an appetite for these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.